makes a church a church? Think about it. What makes a church a church? It might sound like an odd question to ask on a Sunday morning, right? I mean, isn't that what we're doing? Aren't we doing church? Well, in one sense, that's true. Yes. But there's more to, uh, to church than what we do on a particular day of the week. Christians typically talk about church in two different ways. They're related, but they are distinct. First, uh, there's the big C church, the, the universal church. That's the bride of Christ in total. That is God's people, Christ's flock, everyone who ever has and ever will be joined to Christ in faith, irrespective of time and space. But then there's also the little C church which is what we're talking about when we talk about the local church. It's what we're doing here and now. The local church is a body of believers who are held together by common faith and baptism, who come together on a regular basis to meet and worship and to hear from God's word, from the preaching of God's word, who also observe the ordinances and then live in accountability with each other. When Jesus laid the foundation for the church, the word that he used to describe it roughly translates in English to the gathering or the gathered saints. When we gather together like we are today, the kingdom of God becomes visible for all to see. That's why Christians are so eager week in and week out to come together. That's why uh, we, we don't that's why we come here right now. We don't come here to be entertained. We come here to worship. We come to be the church. But the gathering of the church is only part of what the church does, isn't it? We don't stop being Grace Baptist Church when we all go home. We remain members of this local body, even as we go out into the world to be lights and ambassadors in the world around us. So there's more to the church, to being the church, than simply being in proximity to each other, isn't it? Well, when we lived in Louisville, almost every year, we'd have multiple uh, versions of these. these we have these huge conferences which would come together. And you, you would have gatherings of thousands of Christians who would come together to hear God's word preached. Uh, they'd sing songs together. Uh, sometimes, actually, the singing was so awesome that they would actually make recordings of this, and then you could purchase that and, and listen to it so you can continue to be encouraged. Uh, during that time, they'd eat together, uh, they'd spend time together. Sometimes you'd have uh, friends from long distances getting together just to spend some time together as they've been spun off to different ministries in different places. Now, that's, that's a church, right? I mean, it does all the things of a church. Well, no, it's not. That's a conference, and there's a big difference between a bunch of Christians sitting in a room together and an actual local church. What is that difference? Well, we can say that that difference is that those conferences don't meet regularly enough, that they don't observe the ordinances. But I think that the difference is more fundamental than that. I think that the, when you get down to it, the defining difference is that a local church is defined by a covenant commitment a set of binding promises that we make to each other and carry out towards each other in response to God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit under the authority of King Jesus. 
As a local church, we not only share a set of common convictions about what the Bible says, but we respond to those convictions by living together as members of a covenant community. Now, when Paul wrote this letter, he addressed it not to the Christians of Galatia, but to the churches of Galatia. And that might seem like one in the same thing, one in the same thing. But really, it, there is an important distinction to be seen there. Because as Paul confronted the lie of this false gospel and called the churches back to the truth, he also called each one of these members of it, these individual Christians, back together to live as a covenanted, uh, a covenanted, committed community with each other. So as ambassadors of Christ, Christians know that we're meant to represent Christ to the world. But we also have a distinct responsibility to other believers, especially to those whom we've committed to in the context of a local church. Whereas we enjoy a certain kind of fellowship with every believer we come across, there's a special bond that we have with our fellow brothers and sisters whom we've committed to and promised to walk beside and to keep each other accountable. So I am, this is no secret, I am wholeheartedly convinced that God means for believers to be formally joined and committed to each other in the context of a local church. And church membership, let's be clear, is not about just having your name on a roll somewhere. Where I'm from in the, in the South, churches typically have a, 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 a cemetery, which if you're a member, then you have a plot that's yours. And so you have people who haven't darkened the door of the church in 30 years, but they have a plot there because their name is on a roll. When we talk about church membership, that is not what we're talking about. When we talk about church membership, we're talking about a commitment to God and a commitment to his people. Our passage this morning, uh, let's be, is, is obviously, it's not a, so much about the idea of church covenants or the idea of church membership. It's more, th- those are topics that are on my mind as I've been uh, trying to compile a, um, a brochure about our church covenant and making it a more regular part of our lives as a church. But our passage does assume some of those things that I've touched on already. And it goes on to exhort us on the basis of that community covenant and to instruct us on how we're supposed to live with one another as a church. In this passage, Paul aims to remind us and to teach us how we're supposed to live as a committed community with each other. And what we discover as we read what he has to say here is that we have a responsibility to live with one another as those who will one day give an account for how we have treated each other. So with that being the case, let's, let's stand for the reading of God's word as I read for Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 5. Thank you. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Thank you. Please be seated. 
Well, as we look at this passage, we can see that Paul strikes a very careful balance in these verses, outlining the responsibility that we have for how we live in a Christian community with each other, and with the responsibility we have for paying careful attention to how we ourselves are living in obedience to the commands of Christ. There's a community idea here, and there's an individual idea here. And he balances both of them. And it's an important balance that I think informs us in how we're to consider our own faith, our own walk with Christ, and also how that walk with Christ binds us together to live in community with each other. The key focus of this passage is how believers are to fulfill or to obey the law of Christ, specifically in how we bear with one another. Uh, This really is, what we're looking at this morning, is an expansion on what we considered last week when we thought about what it means to live by the Spirit and to keep in step with the Spirit. Uh, Paul's directions here are are meant to, they're specifically addressed to believers. Life in the Spirit is a necessary component of obedience to the law of Christ. This is an obedience that begins at the point of faith, which relies on faith and which continues in faith. We receive the Spirit, not through our own works or through our own efforts. We don't earn the Spirit, but we are rather we, we receive the Spirit through the hearing of the gospel as it is proclaimed to us and by receiving or believing that good news. That's what we read in Galatians 3, verse 2. The link between life in the Spirit and obedience to the law of Christ is an important feature of what Paul has to say as he describes what the life of the local church is supposed to look like. Remember, uh, as we've talked about what this new covenant is and and what it means for believers, that when God spoke of this new covenant and of the new age of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament, that he promised to redeem his people from sin. He promised to give his people new hearts that had new desires. He promised to, to make his own spirit dwell in and among his people. And he promised to write his law on our hearts so that we would have a heart to obey them. That promise has become a reality in the person and in the work of God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's the promise that secures the hope of every believer. And it's something that affects the way that we think about how uh, we ought to live with one another as Christians. Last week we looked at how we are to live by the Spirit, purging the pridefulness of our own hearts, living in peace with each other, and seeking to satisfy our hearts in Christ. That same theme carries over into what we're looking at today. Now, Paul has more to say about what it really means to keep in step with the Spirit. And so the main idea that he stresses here is this command to fulfill the law of Christ by using our freedom to lovingly serve and to bear with each other. So what I want to do in our time this morning is to look at four ways that we keep in step with the Spirit by living together in the context of a Christian community, in the context of the local church. And those four ways, which if you have the sermon notes, you should have them there, but I'll outline them now for you. So the four ways we keep in step with the Spirit in this way is, first of all, we restore the wayward. We restore the wayward. Secondly, we bear with each other. We bear with each other. Third, we know ourselves. Know yourself. And finally, we keep our eyes on our own work. And keep our eyes on our own work. We want to begin with this first command of restoring 
the wayward. Now, here, here in the next few weeks or so, if the Lord wills, sooner uh, hopefully than later, our family is going to be undergoing some massive changes as we expect the birth of our little girl. As we get ready to welcome her, it feels a bit different for me at least than when we were expecting our first. Uh, by the grace of God, we have succeeded in keeping one baby alive. And by the grace of God, we will succeed in keeping another baby alive. Now, I don't have a lot of anxiety about that like I did when we were having Titus. Uh, what's really been on my mind in the midst of all this preparation is wondering how Titus is going to react to all of this. I feel like the challenge of this one is going to be how to shepherd Titus through getting a baby sister. And he finally says that he wants a baby, but he clearly does not completely have a grasp on what that actually is going to mean for him. Now, I have a younger sister. She's two years younger than me. Now, we have a great rela relationship. I love her. I'm proud of her. Uh, growing up, we, we definitely had our fair share of bickering and fighting. But for the most part, we were best buds. Wherever I was, she was. And wherever she was, I was. And we looked out for each other. We, we encouraged each other and so on. So as a parent, I want my children to have a relationship like that. I want them to have a sort of camaraderie with each other. Brothers and sisters don't always agree with each other, and they don't always treat each other as they ought to. But it is such a good and pleasant thing, David says in Psalm 133, when brothers dwell with each other in unity. He says it is like precious oil on the head. Unity and peace in a family is something we all want. It's a precious thing. It's, it's like a fragrant, pleasing smell that just comforts the soul. In Galatians 6, 1, we see Paul using the language of family to address the Galatian churches. <clears throat> he calls the members of these churches brothers, and by extension of the word, he uses uh, sisters. So this is brothers and sisters. Now, considering everything we have read so far in the book of Galatians and considered so far in the book of Galatians, that's no small thing to hear Paul talking to these believers as brothers and sisters. When a person is born again, when they believe the gospel and the Spirit comes to live in them, they become something new. They are a new creation, Scripture says. And as such, they, we become part of the family of God. It's one of the favorite ways that you see the New Testament writers talking, about, uh, the, talking to the church, calling them brothers and sisters in the faith. It's a title that Jesus himself uses for those who are joined to him by faith. In Matthew 12, verses 48 and 50, uh, Jesus declares that entrance into his family isn't a matter of flesh and blood, but it, that it's a matter of faith. And then he says, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus says, if you do the will of God, then you're family with me. And the starting place of obedience to God is faith in Christ. Now it's significant then that Paul, here at the end of this letter, chooses to refer to the Galatian churches in this way. Because I think what it does is it really shows us his confidence in God's preserving power. Uh, you remember, if you remember months ago when we were in Galatians chapter 1, we noticed that there's this emptiness to his address. In his opening address of the churches in this letter, he began by expressing how dumbfounded he was that these people had so quickly deserted the one who had called them to adopt this distortion of the gospel. But now we see 
Paul, driven by his confidence in the Lord that these rebukes will find their mark, that he's now content to address these churches as his brothers and sisters. The church is a family. But that doesn't mean we're always at peace with each other. And so, in this letter to the churches of Galatia, um, it's no secret to us that Paul is addressing a family that was troubled. Troubled because of a false gospel that had taken hold there, uh, and, and troubled, it seems, because of various sorts of factions and divisions that were springing up. As Paul works towards the restoration of these churches and their members, his focus has shifted from the issue of the Mosaic Law to the issue of living and walking in the life of Christ according to the direction of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, Paul talks about the conflict that rages in us between the sinful nature, our sinful nature, and the Holy Spirit who has come to live and dwell in us. Christians don't claim to be perfect. Actually, in 1 John 1, verse 8, we are told that if we say we have no sin, we show that we are liars and that the truth is not in us. So Christians know that we are sinners. Now, we confess that we have rebellious thoughts, actions, and attitudes, and every day we battle sin. Now, sometimes, many times, that conflict actually spills out onto our relationship with others. There are no such thing, there is no such thing as a private sin. Just as when we were in the book of Joshua, we saw that Achan's sin led to the death of Israelite warriors and the defeat of the first time when they attacked the city of Ai. It was because of Achan's sin. Just as that was the case, so we see that our sin also affects our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. And though believers hate their sin, sometimes sin gets the better of us. We are caught by it, snared by it. Now it's been said that Christians are the only army in the world that shoots its own wounded. But that is not what Paul instructs the church to do here. Instead, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. There's a command then to restore the wayward. Now the idea that Paul is describing here is not so much that a person has simply been caught in the act of sinning, but that they have been caught by the sin itself. That they fell back into old desires of the flesh which are opposed to the spirit. Paul is indicating here that just as the Spirit works to root out those old desires to convict us of sin and to sanctify us in holiness, so we as a church are to be committed to each other, even when we sin, to restore each other with a spirit of gentleness according to the grace which we ourselves have received. In order to faithfully understand this instruction, we do need to understand that Paul is assuming that this person who has been caught in this sin is repentant. A bullet has to be removed before you can work on healing the trauma that it has created. If you just sew up a wound with a bullet inside, that person is going to die. We could easily misunderstand, misunderstand Paul's instructions here if we leave that part out. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus tells us, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So you see there in Jesus' instruction that there's 
confrontation, but that there's also repentance. And that repentance is what leads to restoration. Restoration requires repentance as a first step. In the rest of Jesus' instruction on how we're to confront sin in each other's lives, he indicates that a persistent failure to repent will lead ultimately to being cut off from the fellowship of the church. Paul himself reprimanded the Corinthian church, which was boasting of how accepting they were of a particular man who had committed a gross sexual sin that wasn't even allowed among the Gentiles. Uh, They boasted about this because they thought they were doing a good thing by accepting this man and his sin. Uh, They thought they were actually magnifying the grace of God by allowing this transgression to go on unchecked. And Paul has to explain to them that what they are doing is counter to the gospel. And what they are doing is actually not a good thing at all. And so, when Paul now says that if anyone is caught in any transgression were to restore him, He's not saying that the church should overlook gross sins. Rather, he's commanding the church to restore the repentant. And that's really the heart of what this command is here. And the reason Paul stresses this restoration is because restoration of the repentant is the way of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is explaining what it means to walk in step with the Spirit. As a church... We have a responsibility to call each other to repentance and we have a, a great responsibility to restore each other in you know, the spirit of gentleness. Now notice that Paul speaks to everyone in the church here. He is purposely vague in this title he uses when he says, you who are spiritual. The ones doing this work of restoration, it's not a specific group in the church. This is not some spiritually elite group. This is everyone who is in Christ, everyone who is part of the church family. We are all called to walk by the Spirit. And if we are, to, if we are, if we are keeping in step with the Spirit, then we fit into that category of those who are spiritual. So this is a command to every believer to be restoring one another with a spirit of grace and a spirit of graciousness. Now it is easy when we see someone else caught in sin to either think bitterly of them or to think, even if we wanted to admit it, that we ourselves are just a little bit better than they are. In the second part of verse 1, Paul warns us then to keep a careful watch on ourselves lest we be tempted Now, he could be saying that we might be tempted with the same sin that we're restoring this person. But I don't think that's the case. Rather, if we look at the context of what Paul is talking about, Paul has been addressing the churches, calling the churches to be purging pride, to be dealing with with one another with a spirit of of humility. And so I think the temptation he actually has in mind is that temptation we have that when we see someone else's sin, to think better of ourselves or to think that we are greater than them. We all have to fight against sin. It is a continual fight. And it is hard. It is so hard to obey James when he tells us to confess to one another our sins. Because we really are afraid of what others might think about us because we know what we think about others when we hear about their sin. We tell ourselves, it's not their business anyway. But part of walking in step with the Spirit, part of waging war on the flesh, part of purging pride and putting the flesh and its desires to death comes through confession of sin and then through gentle restoration of one another according to the same grace which we ourselves have received. 
Gentleness is an important part of restoration because gentleness comes from a heart of humility. In dealing with the brokenness of sin, we have to adopt the humble mind of Christ, realizing that while today we may be the ones who are restoring our brother or our sister, tomorrow we may be the one that needs, is in need of restoration. So confession is important in the life of the body because it is a great teacher of humility and it is an essential practice for Christian obedience since the Spirit is always working to root out old desires from us. Now, when we think about the relationship we have with each other as the church, it's really hard to practice good confession and accountability and restoration if we're not joined in fellowship with the local church. I think about when I when was talking about those conferences, the wonderful thing about a conference like that is I feel like you get a taste of what heaven is going to be like. Uh, when you're sitting there with seven 8,000 Christians singing together of the grace that they have received. It is a powerful thing. It's a convicting thing. And you don't really want to leave it. That's why they sell those CDs, because you get to take a little piece of it with you. But there's a lot of room for anonymity in a context like that. You don't have to be a Christian to be there. You don't have to hold to a confession of faith. You don't have to be, uh, you're not accountable for what this person next to you is thinking or doing. You come, you sit in your seat, you participate, and then you ultimately go home. It is so difficult to walk together in accountability if, if we have, don't have those promises that bind us together, if we're not committed to one another. And so, it's important that the church not only comes together, but that we know each other and that we're committed to those promises we make. So it's important for us to ask ourselves, especially in a church our size, do you know your church well enough to be held accountable? Uh, does your church know you well enough to hold you accountable? And then do you know your fellow, uh, your fellow believers well enough that you can call out sin in their life and you know that they'll respond to you because they've seen you and how you walk graciously with others? Uh, do you do that? Are you content to just kind of hold back a little bit, to make a showing, but then not actually to hold those commitments we make to each other? We can all, this is an area we can all work in. And I want to encourage you to do that. Because part of what we have, part of the gem we have of being a size, of the size that we are, is that when I look out on a Sunday, I know who's not here and who is here just because I'm looking for faces. And everyone else does too. This is a precious thing to have. And we need to lean into it as a church. So we begin in this by making sure that we were restoring each other in a spirit of faithfulness and in a spirit of gentleness together. The second way we keep in step with the Spirit in the context of the community of the church that Paul lays out here is that we bear each other's burdens. We bear each other's burdens. And there's an old backpacking proverb that says, ounces equal pounds and pounds equal pain. And you can typically spot a new backpacker simply because they just pack too much. They have the biggest pack and it is loaded down. A couple miles into the trail and they're usually regretting bringing that that heavy 20-pound cast-iron Dutch oven. Now, sometimes, as easily as it is to, to, to spot someone who's never been backpacking before, it's, it can also be somewhat easy to, to spot someone who is an experienced backpacker. Uh, they usually, uh, that's usually because not only do they have a smaller pack because they know what to leave at home, but they're usually carrying two packs, theirs and the less experienced hikers, because it's just been too much for that person who's beginning. 
Having a friend walking next to you who can share the load of your heavy pack can make all the difference in the world. There is no such thing as a lone wolf Christianity. We are part of a family. We're part of a body. We each go through hard times. And keeping in step with the Holy Spirit means not just looking out for ourselves, but also looking out for each other in a way that is related to what we've already considered in terms of confession and in restoration, Paul instructs us here in verse 2 uh, to be bearing one another's burdens and then so, in so doing so, to fulfill the law of Christ. Now the burdens that Paul has in mind aren't just the burdens of the sin struggle that we have. It can also include going through a tough time uh, through the loss of a loved one. It can include being in a financial burden. It can include just going through depression. It can, it can, just, it can be a, uh, just that maybe if, if you had a father who's, who was not good to you, it can be a, that can be a burden also to share with your church. These burdens are, are things that are beyond just uh, just our struggle against sin, but really our struggle in this world. And Jesus tells us that in this world we will have trouble. And he tells us to take heart because he has overcome the world. But in doing so, in bearing with one another's burdens, we actually become a means of grace in each other's lives. Built together as one unit, working together for each other's edification. And the law of Christ that Paul talks about here is distinct, I think, from the law of Moses, which is what these false teachers who were troubling the Galatians were saying you had to keep in order to be counted righteous by God. And Paul makes a very clear distinction between these two laws in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And while there are a number of different views on what Paul is exactly referring to when he talks about the law of Christ, it's best to understand that this, these are uh, the commands of Christ, which involve our duty to God, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, with all of our strength, and our duty to each other, to love our neighbor as ourselves. The gospel of grace does not free us up to live according to our own discretion. It frees us to live under the rule and the reign of Christ according to the Spirit who is at work in us under the authority of His Word so that we then bear righteous, the righteous fruit of faith. The law of Christ isn't something that we keep and earn our own righteousness through. It's something that we keep in active obedience to Christ because of His work for us and in us. It's Jesus' yoke which He tells us to take up. But it's not a burden uh, to us the way the law of Moses is that thunders at us because of our inability to measure up to it. It's a yoke that is light because Jesus carries the burden for us. And that's what we read earlier this morning from, from Matthew. In the same way that Jesus bears with us, Paul says that we are called to bear with each other. He says that this is the fulfillment of the law of Christ, which is similar to what we read above in Galatians 5, chapter uh, verse 14, where we looked at, which we looked at a couple of weeks ago. This goes deeper, as I've said, than just dealing with sin in each other's lives. It means that we empathize with each other, that we sympathize with each other when we're going through tough times. It means that we take time to grieve with each other. It means that we share our resources with each other. It means that we are always intentionally looking out for each other and that we are earnestly trying to find ways that we can serve each other. 
It also means that we must be willing to share the load we are carrying with others. Pride can lead us to shut off, to try to look good so that we end up bearing more than we're meant to bear. Sometimes the isolation that we feel is a creation of our own making. We don't want to admit that we're struggling. We're afraid to depend on someone else because it might not get done the way we want it to be. Or we're afraid that they'll look down on us if we ask for help. But then we feel lonely and overwhelmed. If the Spirit lives in us, if we are living by the Spirit, then we must keep in step with the Spirit. And the Spirit is a great helper. He aids us in our weakness, sometimes through extraordinary displays of His power, and sometimes, perhaps more regularly, through using created means of grace like this church body. This is a resource for you, something that you're intended to use. One of the most important things that we do as a church, thus fulfilling the law of Christ, is committing to lovingly serve one another as Christ has served us. I'm going to be honest here. Bearing someone's burdens is a costly thing. It will cost you. It may cost you financially. It may cost you your time. It may cost you your dignity. It may cost you your preferences. But as costly as that service may be, God takes the service of His saints very seriously. You cannot outspend God, and He promises to repay those well who serve in the name of Christ for the sake of Christ richly. If your hearts truly treasure Him, then we will learn to serve one another even when it costs us greatly. We must bear one another's burdens. Now the third point we have here, the third way that we see that we're called to walk together as a covenant community is to know ourselves. So know yourself. And to this point, we've really focused on the responsibility that we have towards one another. But now Paul shifts a little bit, and this is where we see the balance. He tells us that we are to examine ourselves. In verse 3 he says, For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now, when I first got into archery, I was not very good at all. But once I stopped, I continued at it, eventually I stopped losing arrows, and then I actually started hitting what I was aiming at. And then with more practice, I saw that the size of my groups were, were getting smaller, <clears throat> and I started shooting longer distances. And eventually, what I could do, it stood out from the random people that I met at the archery range who were just coming out there to fling arrows. And I shot further than them, I shot tighter than them, and I started feeling pretty confident about my abilities. I actually thought I was a pretty good archer when we moved up here. And then I joined an archery club that has some actual professional archers in it, and I learned how far I have to come. And before then, before then, I thought that I had some skill because all I had seen was just random guys showing up and just slinging arrows and breaking them on the targets. But then I learned that I really was, uh, what I thought was good was really nothing. You might even say that I thought I was something, but really, I, what I thought was impressive really was nothing at all. I was, I was deceived by myself. Now Paul began this section in verse 25 telling us to keep in step with the Spirit. And then he called us not to become conceited. Pride tells us that we are something when we are really nothing. Pride tells us that our own efforts will do just fine. They tell us that 
uh, that our efforts are worthy when really in the kingdom of God they're about as useful and good as monopoly money is for buying a house. If we think we are something, we may decide that we are better uh, than our brothers and sisters. We may look at other people's lives and may, "Mm, you know, I got that covered. I'm doing that better than them. I really am something. We may hear about what someone is going through. We may hear again how they have fallen into the same sin again. And we pass judgment on them and decide, you know what? I'm too good for this. They don't deserve my time. They don't deserve my resources. I'm done cleaning up their mess. If anyone thinks that he or she is something, then they have forgotten that everything we are, we are by grace. Your time, your talents, your money, your position has been given to you. Remember the gospel, my friends. You and I, we were at war with God. We were unwilling and unable to live righteous lives. But God, because of his great love with which he has loved us, sent his own son who took the penalty of our sin upon himself. He chose the path of humility. And because he did that, his riches have become our riches. And the things that we once counted as valuable and worthy of our time and attention we saw as the hollow things that, we, that they really are. Because Christ embraced humility, because of his strength, we are free and we are clean. And because of his work for us, we are able to walk by the Spirit, to know God, to worship him with right hearts, and to bear fruit that is pleasing in God's sight. It is so, so easy to get content in ourselves, especially when the measure of our success is a brother or a sister who's struggling. It is so, so easy to think that God owes us for what we do, that he must honor us. But Jesus reminds us in Luke chapter 17 that God owes us nothing. In verses 7 through 10, he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep Say to him when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Remember, friends, all that you are, you are because of grace. If there is anything that is good or commendable in you, it is there because of God's grace. It is his favor that is unmerited. Your righteousness is not your own. Your obedience is not your own. You are a product of God's own loving kindness, which he has shown you in spite of your failings and your sins. We must seek to know ourselves. Knowing ourselves will remind us of how God bears with us. It will create a gratefulness in us that will allow us to bear with each other. It will save us by the grace of the Spirit from having a pretentiousness about our lives that that keeps us uh, from, from investing in each other and keeps others at arm's length from us. It will lead us to serve one another and to love one another as we ourselves have been served and loved. Do not 
think to take the place of honor at God's table. If we exalt ourselves, we will most certainly be disappointed when he, the master of the feast, gives the place we covet to another. See yourself for what you are, a servant of Christ who has received the blessing of salvation that you did not deserve and wait for his exaltation as he looks at you, his beloved child, with love in his own eyes and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We must know ourselves and thereby we must kill pride. The fourth way that we're called to live together as a covenant community is that we're called to test our own work. Test your work. Now, I am a, I'm, I'm, if you haven't picked up on this, I'm a competitive person. I like to win. If I do something, I want, it, I want to be the best at it. Uh, in, in school, when my, uh, when my class would get a test or a project back, everybody, I ran an honor circle, so everybody like kept their, their, um, their score under their hand, but they glanced over at everybody else's. Because you want to know where you stack, right? You want to know whether or not, oh, yeah, I feel really good. I got a 99, but six people in front of me got a 100. So that doesn't look very good. Yeah. So you kind of measure yourself up. You measure yourself up in that context on the basis of how other people perform. Uh, You want to know, did I beat so-and-so? And and honestly, I'm still like that in a lot of ways. It's a constant battle, and it's a battle with pride. In verses 4 through 5, Paul tells us effectively to keep your eyes on your own work. He says, don't deceive yourself thinking you're something when you're really not, but rather let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each one will have to bear his own load. Now this is an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Especially when with what Nate was preaching on uh, this morning uh, for Matthew 6. Is Paul telling Christians to be boastful? Is he telling us to boast in our own work? Well, not really. In verse 14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the guy who's saying, talking about boasting in your own work says, I won't boast in my own work. I'll only boast in the cross of Christ and what he's done for me. So if we are, if all that we are is of grace, and if Paul indicates that we have no reason to boast except in Christ on the basis of what he has done for us in spite of us, then it doesn't follow that he's instructing believers here to boast about the righteous things that we do. Actually, he's saying something quite the opposite. Have you ever noticed that athletes tend to slow down when they look behind them on the field? If the fastest runner on the field puts every ounce of energy they have into running their race, focused on one goal, totally oblivious to the other runners, he or she will run their best race. If we start comparing our lives to others, if we take our eyes off the founder and the perfecter of our faith, King Jesus, we won't run with the same exuberance we've been called to run with. We'll be tempted to relax, to slow down, to think, well, as long as I'm ahead of this person, I should be pretty good. And just good enough is good enough, right? Well, the race we've been called to run as followers of Christ isn't a race against other runners. 
It's a race to the prize. A race to exalt the lover of our souls, our Redeemer, our King. Paul says that we must test our own work and just keep our eyes on our own paper. We know when we have committed, we know when we're working with excellence and when we're just settling. We know that in our own heart. If we compare our work to others, we may grow prideful and conceited, deciding that our work is so much better than theirs, forgetting, though, that, um, that the judgment of our own work is not on the basis of the work of our neighbor, but rather it's based on what we have actually received in grace from our master. In verse 5, Paul explains why we need to each be testing our own work, not comparing it to the work of our brother or sister, but testing the excellence of what we do and why we do it. And that reason is this. Judgment is coming. He says, for each will have to bear his own load. A prideful, conceited heart is like a set of rose-colored glasses. It makes things look better than they really are. And it tempts us to settle rather than pressing on towards the goal that has been set before us with every ounce of energy that we have. One day, we will each give an account to God for what we have done, for how we have handled what he has given us. You are each God's field, God's building. Christ is our foundation. But as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 says, let each one take care how he builds upon it. Since each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. The gospel of grace teaches us to hope in the work of Christ for us. We do not earn our place in God's house as one of his children through our own efforts. Even so, the fruit of our lives will reflect how deeply we are rooted and what we are rooted in. And if we are rooted in Christ, we ought to be bearing the, the fruit of Christ. So we are called, each of us, to test our own work, not in arrogance, not against the standards of others, but according to the way of Christ, knowing that while we have a responsibility to bear with each other, to restore one another, to encourage one another... Ultimately, we will give an account to God as to how we used our time and our money and our resources and our knowledge and the opportunities which he has given us. All that we are, all that we have is of grace. And we must live in that way. Not comparing our lives to the lives of others, but looking to Christ who has set us on this path and told us to run with every ounce of energy we have. Remember to those to whom much has been given, much will be required. Now that is a standard we can look at without fear because we know our standing before God is ultimately determined by Christ. But as we consider that, we recognize that we have a weighty responsibility to run the race that's been set before us, to live our lives using, leveraging every ounce of freedom we have for the sake of making Christ in the lives of others. We have been given a great grace and we have been given a great love. So, in great faith, let us resolve to live not just for the purpose of trying to meet a standard or a bar just to get over it, but rather to live our lives as a boast in the glory of our great God and our great King, Jesus Christ. We all have resources that have been given to us. 
We've all been given opportunities. We have to seize those things. That begins, I think, in our relationship with each other. We each have a responsibility towards one another. As we seek to live with each other, staying in step with the Spirit, we must strive to restore each other in the spirit of gentleness when we fall. We must bear one another's burdens as we struggle in a life that is difficult and hard. We must know ourselves so that we don't get a conceited, overblown view of who we think we are. And we must treasure who we are in Christ so that we give a careful attention to the way that we live, always seeking to glorify our great God and King. What good news it is to know that the one who has defeated death and who lives again lives in us to make that a reality. And so let us live in the grace of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus,